You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. We are the Stevens family. I'm Nathan. I'm Christy. We have four kids who are Elena's 15, Luke is 13, Blake is 10, and Tessa is four. Here at the chapel, I'm the director of women's ministry, and we've been here since what, 2000, 2004. Yep, 2004. I guess I would say that you know being being called um, into the, the family of God has has shown that, that our lives are not our own, um, that there's something more that the Lord has called us to than just being comfortable um, and, and doing doing things that only serve ourselves. And so the Lord led us into uh, foster care, um, quite honestly, kind of um, maybe even against our will. And I think for our years, so we started fostering in 2014 and I think all along even before that just really wrestling with the fact that our like Nathan said our lives are not our own and he will faithfully lead us and guide us and that our piece of whatever he's taking us to is just obedience and um, around that same time I went on my first trip with the chapel to Thailand and I remember thinking the same thing of just whether you are in Thailand um, or whether you're in your own home with foster kids or whatever it is he's called us to do with our neighbors, you know, our job is just to obey him and faithfully do the next thing he's given us to do and entrust that he's the savior. We don't have to carry that weight of being the savior. And I'm not the one who restores lives. I'm not the one who can carry that. Um, my job is to walk with Jesus and to allow him to show the next step that I take. And honestly, he took us down a path we were afraid to walk. Um, because we, as, as everyone is, when you enter into foster care and adoption, we were terrified of getting attached to a child and having them be moved. And that happened to us over and over again. Um, and yet we saw God's care for us through that and care for our biological children, our care for the foster children that we had and how we got to be an instrumental part of their story um, for however long. It was hard. I mean, there, it was, it's, it's been very, very difficult. And so I think that that's, that's the other piece of it is that, you know, the Lord doesn't call us into things um, that are necessarily always comfortable, certainly not, and certainly not easy. Um, but I think the part that was hard was the, the places that he showed himself to us in unique ways that were available to us otherwise. And it also helped us to clarify what about this is the hard thing. The hard part is not, I need to save this child's life. I need to restore this family. Um, the hard part was, how do we live faithfully today when we're really tired and tomorrow when we're really frustrated on the days we say goodbye to one of our babies that we had. Um, those are the hard days because um, they, they have to be, right? We live in a broken world. And so the brokenness should make us sad, right? But also um, point us back to the fact that we have this hope that he is the rescuer. We are, we are not. We are not in charge of this child's life or this family's life. Uh, 
we are just obedient. We're called to be obedient today. We are the Stevens family, and we have been made new through Christ. Well, I love that. And just a little snippet into Nate and Christy's family and in their life. We've watched these, these videos kind of every, every week during this Made News series, and I was joking with somebody before, like all these little videos have been great little snippets, and they've been very inspiring. That one made me hungry, because so I got like pancakes and bacon, I'm like, all right, let's go. Anyway, now there's a few things in that I want to highlight, because it dovetails so naturally into where we're going to go this morning. There's the sense that when you choose to follow Jesus, that your life is no longer your own. That song that we just sang, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee, was written by a woman named Frances Havagirl, who actually was a professional singer in her day. And Jesus got a hold of her heart, and she said, that's it, I'm not filling concert halls anymore, I'm not going to go do this. What I am going to do is I'm going to give away everything I own, I'm going to give my life to the Lord, and I'm going to sing, Ever Only All for Thee. And she packed a box of all her jewelry that was given to her as a, as a professional singer, and packed it in a box and sent it away and gave it away. And she said, I never packed a box with such joy. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And so if that resonates with where you are this morning, um, you're really going to love how we wrap up this teaching series called, called Made New. This is all about being a missionary, a sent one, someone who recognizes that your life is a whole lot bigger than just yourself or just the dash between your birthday and the day that your eyes close. That's where we're going to be this morning. So this is the last week of our five-week teaching series called Made New. And these five weeks have just kind of been a quick sketch of what needs to be in place in your life for you to flourish spiritually. So quick review, we need to have a strong sense of our identity in Christ, that's week one. You need to know that you are made, created as a worshiper of Christ, that we are part of the family of Christ, and then last week that we serve others out of love for Christ, and then today that we are on mission because of Christ. So that's been this series, and next week we're actually going to turn the coin over a little bit. If all of that is the photograph if all of that's the positive stuff, we need to take a look at the negative of the photograph and ask a different question and say, well, what prevents us from getting there? Like, we all know we have to have this rock-solid identity. We need to be a part of a family. We need to be connected. We need to, uh, what keeps us stuck? And so for four weeks, we're going to take a look at things like anxiety and fear and shame and doubt, these, these things that are just kind of these inevitable roadblocks that prevent us from stepping into the life that God has for us. And I think as a church, incidentally, we need to talk about that kind of stuff because if we don't, we're missing an opportunity to just be real with each other, normalize kind of our own spiritual health. So that's starting next week. But here's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. And so if you've got a Bible, you can flip there, turn there, scroll there, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to do two things. Our time is going to kind of break very neatly in half. Uh, we're going to take about 15 minutes and just look at the text because there's a ton in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. There's a ton in there as it relates to mission. Um, and it's this really beautiful picture of a man who married man, two kids, and he ended up giving his life to the Lord. Didn't know that about Isaiah, did you? It's pretty incredible. And then the second half, we're going to take a look at, well, 
what do I actually do with this thing? Maybe you've heard Isaiah 6 before, or you know about this great call on this man's life. Well, how do we lift it out of 2,700 years of history and bring it up to today? So that's where we're going. Isaiah chapter 6. And I think what you'll see is there's a lot in this very old, dusty book that connects to our lives today. So Isaiah chapter 6, let's just start right away in verse 1. Here's what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. We'll get to those in a minute. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Quite a vision, isn't it? It's quite a picture. So what's with that bit about in the year King Uzziah died? We've got to start there because that's where Isaiah starts. Why is that so important? Here's the idea. Um, in the ancient world, the lives of people were marked by the starting and ending points of kings. So that's kind of what he's doing here. We do this stuff all the time. Stuff like, where were you on September 11th? Remember? Sure you do. Where were you when the Challenger exploded? For some of you, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Right? You remember these very benchmarky kind of moments in your life, and they help orient you to the world around you. These worldwide events stick in our memory. It's the same idea here. So a quick little bit about King Uzziah, just for context's sake. Uzziah came to the throne at age 16. Just got his driver's license. Who's 16 over here? Raise your hand really quick. 16, there you go. This is King Uzziah's age right there. It's kind of spooky. He reigned in Israel for 52 years. He was one of the longest reigning kings in Judah's history. And if you do the math, that's like us having the same president since 1969. Talk about staying power. This guy amassed a ton of cultural influence over 52 years. Uzziah's reign began economically prosperous, but it ended spiritually bankrupt. Uzziah enlarged the borders. That's good. He bolstered the economy. He built the military. All these really good things. But out of his pride, Uzziah entered into the house of the Lord where kings could not go. Only priests could go. And then he came down with a curious case of leprosy because of that. And he ended the rest of his life ceremonially unclean outside of the community alone and afraid. And so as Uzziah's life here and influence slip into ever-deepening shadow. Assyria, which is this giant warlike kingdom on the border of Israel, was rising in power. Assyria hates Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, these guys are warlike kingdom bent on world domination, and they're coming fast. But now here's the question. Why does Isaiah say, in the year King Uzziah died? Why doesn't he say in the 52nd year of his reign? Why does Isaiah focus on Uzziah's 
death. He's the only Old Testament prophet to do that. 16 other Old Testament prophets. He's the only one who dates his book by a king's death. Why? Do you think it's a coincidence at all? God gives Isaiah this vision of this almighty, eternal, otherworldly, inconquerable king seated on a throne, high and lifted up at the same moment where an earthly king is moving out of power. What is God trying to teach? What's he actually saying? In the wake of one king's passing, why would God show us a king who cannot die? You think that's intentional at all? You think God has something he wants to share? What is he setting the table for? What does he want to show us? All that timing, all that contrast. What's God doing? Well, Isaiah sees something. What's he see? Let's take a look at it again right in verse 1. Here's what he sees. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And they called to each other. So he sees these things, this majestic, otherworldly picture of God enthroned in majesty. I mean, like this is the stuff we sing about. This is the stuff we imagine, right, on Sunday morning when we, we say things like, let my heart be your royal throne. This is what that, like back in the imagination, this is what it is. Well, it's with these seraphim, right? Okay, so seraphim is a Hebrew word. It literally means burning ones. Burning ones. Seraphim are the highest order of angels, and their whole existence is devoted to the ceaseless worship of Almighty God. It's all they do. And Isaiah doesn't, he's, they're seraphim, they're burning ones. They're so bright. Isn't it interesting how often fire is used in the Old Testament to communicate God's presence? Think about Moses and the burning bush. This is God's people being led by a pillar of fire through the wilderness. This is the fire that falls from heaven at Mount Carmel and consumes Elijah's sacrifice. What is it about fire? Fire, you can't contain fire, right? You can't touch it. You can't get too close to it. It's got a life of its own. It's free. In the right context, fire is incredibly purifying, but in the wrong context, it's incredibly destructive. Fire is powerful. Fire changes things. Fire lights and guides, but it also burns and melts. And so when Isaiah has this vision of Almighty God, it's this incredibly complex image. How different that is from our modern conception of God, a God who I can understand. God who meets me on my terms, God who fits my mold, a God who I'm comfortable with. This whole scene is undeniably not man-centered. Then Isaiah notices that these burning ones are singing something. What are they singing? Did you catch it? It's right there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hebrew is a beautiful language. It's a really poetic language. And it makes really good use of imagery. When a Hebrew writer or a speaker wants to emphasize something, they often will use repetition just to make their point. So like if I went down to Swenson's and had a galley boy. Any galley boy fans in here? We have this enduring thing in our home that, that like Mandy doesn't think the galley boy is the greatest hamburger. And I think she's wrong. Just joking. So if we went down to Swenson's and I had a galley boy, I would eat that thing and I would go, this is good, good. 
right? If I went down to Starbucks this morning and had a, like a triple shot of espresso, my eyes would pop open and I would go, this is strong, strong. Hebrew uses repetition like that all over the Old Testament. This like double dose. Like it's so good, it's good. It's so strong, it's strong. Here's the catch. This is the only point in the Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible, where the quality of something or someone is raised to the power of three. God's not just holy. He's not just like holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. That this otherness of God, how different he is than me, how far above me he is, how compelling he is compared to my own smallness. There's nothing else like him. Nothing else even comes close. So starting off with his vision, Isaiah actually becomes obsessed with the holiness of God. Throughout his book, his favorite name for God is the Holy One of Israel. He uses that 26 times in his book. The entire rest of the Old Testament only uses it six So Isaiah loves this vision of this holy, holy, holy God. And then what follows is Isaiah's reflexive response to what he's just seen. What follows isn't calculated or contrived. This is Isaiah's natural reaction to God's holiness. And just so you know, it's the only right response of a sinful man like me and like you to a holy God. Here's what he says. Take a look in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One catastrophic exclamation. He says, woe is me, We don't talk like that. We live in a wow-is-me world, not a woe-is-me world. He goes, woe is me, and then followed by two indictments. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then as if the gavel falls in some heavenly courtroom, a confession. He says, I've seen the Lord. But then watch what happens next. Because Isaiah's confession prompts something very, very beautiful from God. Quick side note. Until we see ourselves rightly, we'll never understand the beauty of grace. Minimizing my sin, my woeness, minimizing my sin does not make God more palatable. It just makes his grace less amazing. And so, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs, or with tongs, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So kind of weird, right? Like we got this like weird cosmic campsite happening up here. And then this angel getting a little too close to Isaiah. We're not doing this next week. Don't worry. We're serving communion. We're not having a big thing up here. Like... What do you do with this kind of thing? So here's what's going on. This is the altar in the throne room of God. Isaiah's getting a glimpse of God's holiness with high definition, like ultra clear 4K unfiltered clarity. This is a holy God who is complete in himself, satisfied, worshipped in the splendor of his holiness, juxtaposed up against a sinful man loathing himself, 
weeping over his own lostness. And then God takes initiative and moves closer. You see what this anticipates, right? This is 700 B.C., but you see what this looks forward to, right? You see the shadow of the cross hanging over this imagery, don't you? It's beautiful. Behind the burning coals and these fireplace tongs is a really rich theological point that we cannot miss. God's holiness paves the way for God's mercy. That's really important for us to understand. God never favors one of his attributes over the other. And I think we get caught up in that sometimes, especially when we read the Old Testament. right? We think like God of the Old Testament is like mean and angry and like vindictive. And then Jesus in the New Testament is like calm and meek and mild and like he's all nice and sweet. This guy's got a big frown and a big gray beard. This guy's nice. Doesn't work that way. This is not like mercy against justice, New Testament grace against Old Testament wrath. God's holiness isn't the opposite of God's mercy. God's holiness is the instrument of God's mercy. Sounds a little like Jesus, doesn't it? There's this beautiful hymn um, that came out of the Welsh Revival. If you've never heard about the Welsh Revival, just Google it. There's a great documentary on YouTube about it if you want to watch it. The Welsh Revival happened over 100 years ago in Wales, and there's this hymn that came out of it. It's called Here is Love, and it beautifully captures this idea. It says this, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Isn't that great? That's this here. Now, if Isaiah 6 stopped there, that'd be great. But it doesn't. That would be enough. Like, I'm satisfied. Like, that's a beautiful picture. But God doesn't stop with saving Isaiah. There's something more. And now here's where things get really interesting. Take a look in verse 8. That scene is done. Now something moves on. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? This is the Trinity talking And then I said, this is Isaiah, here am I, send me. Now, (laughs) what's really cool about this is it felt like this whole scene has been building to something, right? Like God didn't just do something. He made this this amazing thing happen for Isaiah. Like he gives him this picture of this throne room and then he has this overwhelming sense of guilt. And so God in his mercy saves him. Then what? What's the point of your life? Is it just to be saved? Show up in church, 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning, behave, don't swear too much, be careful what you say, be a well-mannered Christian. But then this whole thing breaks wide open and the light clicks on for Isaiah. God saved me to send me. Fast forward 2,700 years, same principle. God saved you to send you. The only question is where, to who, what's next? Where do I go, God? We'll get there in a minute. But for now, 
God has a really direct answer to this somewhat stupefied Isaiah. He has to be. Just overwhelmed. Now, here's the thing. I've, I've been to like dozens of church missions weekends, and I've heard dozens of sermons based on this text. And maybe you have too. Most of them stop right here. Because like there is this thing, right, that like preaching pastors like love to do. Stop right there and go, okay, who's willing? What God needs is willing people. Who's willing? Who's going? Who's going to go do the hard things? And like we just stop there. And it's like this, come on, come on, come on, who's going, right? But the text doesn't stop there, and so we can't either. The full picture of Isaiah's calling is richer, harder, and more compelling than just simple willingness. So let's read on. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people. Now, these are Isaiah's people. This is his country, his family members, the people he grew up with, the people he knows and know him. Here's what I want you to tell him, Isaiah. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. <laughs> so Isaiah, like most of us, go, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. <laughs> Here's how this is going to go. And he's like, okay, maybe I can do that for a little while, Lord. How much longer do I do that? Like, I get you have like a little bite against your people right now because they're really stiff-necked and they don't like to follow you, Lord. How long does this go on? And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth may remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. <laughs> Great. Can't wait. When do I start? <laughs> this is God saying, Isaiah, no one's going to listen to you. Go anyway. No one's going to like you, Isaiah. Go anyway. And I want you to keep going until all of this is burned up. Translation, Assyria's coming. They're going to torch the place. There's nothing you can do about it. Life is never going to be like it was back then. Go anyway. I want you to bear witness for my love for my people in the midst of a burned-out, post-apocalyptic wasteland. It will never be like it was back then. Go anyway. You think evangelism is hard in 21st century America? Think again. Not a very motivating speech, though, is it? Right? Like This would be like a teacher who's like just graduated college and like, you know, walking across the stage, and the college president gives him the diploma, and then he goes, hey, uh, just so you know, uh, you know, you put in your four years here, you've been a great student, we have high hopes for you. Every one of them is going to be a juvenile delinquent. Have fun. Yeah. It's like an architect. Right before she gets her license, the review board says, we have really high hopes for you. All of your buildings are going to implode. Like coach of a new football team in front of media day, he steps up to the microphone, the owner says, I'd like you to meet our new coach. 
For his entire career, he's going to go 0-16 every season. Really glad he's here. <laughs> What's the point? This is terrible. It's like stepping on board a ship that's already sinking. You're like moving into a house that's got black mold all over it. You're just like, I don't think so. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. You've got to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a little bit. And I don't think this is just speculation. So I'm really going on this mission, Lord. This is it. This is your great plan. Really, God? I'm going to give my life to you. <laughs> and I'm going to have this to show for it at the end. Walking around through a bunch of burned out, fall down, torched forests. You saved me to send me, and then you sent me to sovereignly sabotage me. Really, Lord? So here's where Isaiah's story in 700 B.C. sounds so much like 2021. What would possess someone to take that kind of an assignment? Why would anybody in their right mind even consider that? What's he going to get out of this? So let's come up for air for a bit. I'm willing to bet that nobody in this room has had a vision like this. If you have, please talk to me after the service, and we need to straighten some things out. So what do we do with this thing? How do we take Isaiah 6... 2,700 years of dust on top of it, blow it off and go, what do we do? So for the next like 12 minutes or so, I want to give you three points of meaningful mission. I think you want to be on mission. I think you do want to make a difference. I think you hear us say it all the time. We want to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. I think you're here because there's something in you that goes, yeah, I, I resonate with that. Here's what we're going to do. Three things you need to keep in mind as you do that. Three principles for meaningful mission. Principle number one, meaningful mission starts with who God is and who we are not. Now think with me for a minute. Who wrote Isaiah? Don't overthink this. Who wrote Isaiah? Thank you. Isaiah, okay? Don't overthink it. So this book is at least in one part autobiography. This is Isaiah's call to ministry. This is, how he, this is how he leverages all of his authority. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is how he pitches himself. <laughs> I got nothing, guys. I'm a man of unclean lips. Look, if anything good happens around me, in me, through me, because of me, it isn't because of me. I can't do anything. It's a very freeing place to get. How many of us view personal mission, making much of Jesus, through the lens of our own moral cleanliness? Sounds like this. I can't do that. I got, I got some junk in my life. I got to clean that up first. Uh, if they only knew, if they only knew. How many of us view mission through the lens of our own moral cleanliness? It's not the gospel. I draw a lot of comfort from that, incidentally. For decades, evangelism training in the church sounded something like this. Tell me if you've ever been a part of something like this or this resonates with you. Here's an idea that you need to consider, lost person. God loves you. Here's the risk if you don't buy into that idea, hell. Here's what you need to do if you want to avoid it, Jesus. You want in? What a man-centered view of the gospel that is. 
My problem isn't the facts. Those facts are absolutely true. My problem is it puts me in the center. And thinking of mission through that lens reduces me to a salesman, God as a product, and lost people as my potential customers. That's not the gospel. It's not mission. Contrast that with Isaiah. Guys, I am so messed up. I live among a people of unclean lips, too. They're just as messed up as I am. I have no hope in this world. But God... Can I just tell you what he did for me? Can I tell you how merciful my God is? Which one of those evangelism strategies is more man-centered and which one is more God-centered? I'm with Isaiah. Starts with a very clear picture of who God is and who I am not. Mission, at its core, is about a holy God who loves messed up men and women. Anybody else thankful for that? Because that's me, and that's you. Let's never get too far tethered from that. And that's principle number one. Meaningful mission starts with who God is and who we are not. Principle number two. Meaningful mission is never about what we do for God, but about what he has done for us. When it comes to salvation, God takes the initiative. That's the image of the burning coal. And I want us to see Isaiah 6 for what it is. This is the white-hot holiness of God moving closer to Isaiah. This terrified man who is suddenly conscious of his profound, sorry, sinful, helpless state before God. And out of love for him, God atones for, that means takes care of, his sin. This totally prefigures the cross where God, wrapped in human flesh, moves closer to atone for man's sin. The starting point of biblical faith, real biblical faith and then biblical mission, is a God who sees my unclean lips. Who knows the thoughts that we keep hidden. Knows every skeleton that you've got buried in the back corner of your closet that you want to hide from everybody else. He hears what you whisper to yourself when no one else is listening. He feels your shame. He understands your regret. He carries your doubt. Biblical faith starts with that kind of God who sees all that and still moves closer. Isaiah doesn't like jump up stand with his back as straight as he can, smile as big as he can, get his spiritual resume in order and go, look, God, what I can do for you. (laughs) If anything, it's the complete opposite. It has nothing to do with his behavior. And this is why legalism is so, like, deeply unfulfilling. Legalism is this, like, empty notion that hangs around the Christian church sometimes. This idea that The meaningful Christian life is somehow based on what I do for God rather than what God has done for me. That if I act right, think right, behave right, do right, then God will be pleased with me. Then I'll have grace and goodness in my life. And some of you maybe have come out of a church tradition like that, that that somehow your standing before God is somehow dependent on your performance before man. It's not true. So anti-gospel. We're going to be talking about shame in a couple of weeks, and for now, just know this. The only way to get rid of shame in your life is not by doubling down on your behavior. You don't need a new set of rules to follow. What you need is a new heart. Now, here's how this connects to mission. Our God never 
ever arm wrestles someone into his kingdom through guilt. Our God invites anyone into his kingdom through his love. He doesn't shame anybody into obedience. He simply says, I will always love you, and there's not a thing you can do to change that. And that ludicrous idea is all the motivation I need. Take this one step further. If you engage in mission for any other reason than because of what God has already done for me, right? If you do great things, if you go on missions trips, if you talk about Jesus with your neighbor, right? You do these wonderfully courageous, generous acts in your life for any other reason than because of what God has already done for you. It won't last. It'll peter out. It'll be a phase in your life. You'll have this great little chapter where you were making much of Jesus, but your whole life, it won't, it won't last because it's fake and it's flimsy and it's self-centered. Mission is never about what I do for God. It's about what God has done for us. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, the love of Christ compels me. Why the love of Christ? The love of Christ makes for meaningful mission, not some twisted sense of obligation and guilt. You look in the, even in the New Testament. Every New Testament character who had a meaningful life had a profound encounter with Jesus. This is the disciples on the shore, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus moves closer. The blind man, desperate for dignity, the demoniac who's shackled by darkness, Jesus moves closer. Like this is Peter gulping in seawater, slipping under the waves, even like Christian killing Paul. Damascus Road, Jesus moves closer. According to the New Testament, one thing matters. Have you surrendered your life to the person of Jesus of Nazareth? That's it. Have you let yourself be loved by him? Can you believe that? Have you thrown in the towel of your self-sufficiency and just said, Jesus, I quit, fix me. If you haven't, you have absolutely nothing to offer anyone other than just moral advice. But if you have, your life becomes infinitely more richer. Meaningful mission is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Principle number three, here we go. Meaningful mission seeks long-term faithfulness, not short-term success. Oh, this is such an American one. Meaningful mission seeks long-term faithfulness, not short-term success. And for this, we've got to go back to understand the full scope of Isaiah's life and story. Isaiah prophesied for what historians speculate to be about 64 years. So let's put this on a contemporary timeline, can we? Isaiah is 20-something. Just finished college. Maybe he's in grad school. And then he has this amazing, compelling vision of Almighty God in his throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. He goes to his people and he spends the next six decades, the rest of his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into his 80s, proclaiming the love of God for a stiff-necked people, never wanting out, always in the same groove, never seeking other opportunities. And then at age 90, he's still kicking up enough dirt to draw the ire of a new wicked king named Manasseh, who knows all about Isaiah and would love nothing more than to stop this upstart prophet forever. And so as a reward for his six-plus decades of faithfulness, there's no trophy, 
No fanfare. There's no parade. No nothing. Isaiah's retirement portfolio, according to tradition, consists of him preaching one final message about God's love for his stiff-necked people. And then Manasseh sends his thugs knocking on 90-year-old Isaiah's door and has him sawn in half. How's that for a happy ending of the story? Six and a half decades. Little to no fruit. Six and a half decades. No promotion, no pay raise. Six and a half decades. Every year he loses more than he gains. No riding off in the sunset. No retiring to the golf course. A life of faithfulness. Little to no fruit. Death by martyrdom. Here's what this means. When it comes to mission... God defines success very, very differently than most of us do. How do we define it? More. Whatever chart you have in your head should go up and to the right. I want more influence. I want more ability. I want to see some small, modest measure of success in my life to know that my life counted for something. And if I'm honest, I want to see it in my timeline with my goals the way I want to see it, God. Why do I want that? Let's get vision casty for a bit in our last minute or so together. Hear me on this, church. If you believe that the church is not a building that you go to, but a people you belong to, then by extension, mission is not come and see. That's marketing. And that died a long time ago in the church. Those days in the American church are done. Praise God. Mission cannot be come and see. There must be something more desperate about it. And if you want the church to thrive in a post-nominal Christian culture, rather than melt like wax before the cultural flame, if you really want the church to thrive... We need to reimagine mission, not as bigger buildings, more impressive budgets, and better bottom lines. Mm -mm. It didn't work decades ago, and it's definitely not going to work now. We need to recover what God's mission has always been. Mission, at least according to Isaiah 6, is this radical movement of God spilling over into the lives of ordinary men and women, overflowing into radical love for others. (laughs) That's mission. It's Isaiah's story. I told you he's a married man with two kids. Devoted the rest of his life to living out of long-term faithfulness to his God. What would happen if Isaiah's story became your story? I really want us to get this. Because if the church survives in the West, which is not a guarantee, let's not be so naive, If the church survives in the West, it won't be because people came in those doors ready to hear a great sermon. It's because we will leave those doors ready to introduce them to a greater Savior. That's very, very important. It will not be because people came in here ready to hear a great sermon. It will be because we left here eager to introduce them to a greater Savior. Are you with me in that? I hope so. Practically, here's what this means. And I'll land the plane. Mission starts with what you are doing this afternoon. Mission matters more in your living room 
than it does in this sanctuary. Mission is how you talk about Jesus in coffee shop conversations. It's how he shows up in your parenting with your kids, how you represent his love in online comments and yard signs. (laughs) Jesus out there is more important, arguably, than Jesus in here. Because you hear him proclaimed. You're here. Fast forward to the New Testament. What are you called? You're called light. Why? Because the world's dark. Meaningful mission seeks long-term faithfulness, not short-term success. So we're going to close in just a second, and we're going to sing together. And there's this song. It's, it's a newer one, um, but we chose this song really intentionally to kind of close out this series because it's pretty important. Um, the title is a little odd. It says, look where I'm standing now, which I think is a little, hits me a little odd because sometimes I don't want to stand. Sometimes I'm like, oh, Lord, I just need a moment here to sit or bow before you. But there's this great line that we'll come back to when our worship team leads us in just a moment. It says, hallelujah, I'm free. I hope you know the freedom that's yours in Jesus. I think Isaiah did. I think we live here in light of his legacy 2,700 years later. We're free, nothing to worry about. You have no shame. Nothing you can do can change the fact that God will always love you. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Can't change it. He loves you anyway. That's a very freeing thought. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've done such a great work in your world. We look over our shoulder in these these days of Isaiah and burning seraphim and smoke-filled rooms. It seems like an imaginative thing, Lord, did it really happen? And That's what we want to see. God, what a glimpse you've given us into heaven and eternity. Father, you've been so good to us to provide a burning coal named Jesus who willingly stepped into this world and to take care of all of our woe-ness, all this heavy weight and this embarrassment and this shame and this regret and this lostness and this confusion that we feel in ourselves and see around in our world. God, I pray that you would remind us that you've not just saved us, but you've sent us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit you've put in our hearts. Empower us to go do these things and to talk about you and what you have done and what you can do in the lives of those who seek you. God, you are undoubtedly good. You are undoubtedly sovereign and you are holy, holy, holy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.